Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner. I am your co-host. So happy to be here. Before I get to our guest, and you all know her and love her, remember that Ian dropped his new book, The Story of You, and he just dropped the companion piece, The Story of You workbook. So make sure you check that out. That workbook is super helpful. All right, today's guest. Drum roll, please. New York Times bestselling author of Present Over Perfect and the brand new book, I guess I haven't learned that yet, Discovering New Ways of Living When Old Ways Stop Working. I'm talking about Sean Aniquist, one of our faves. This brand new book reflects on creating a quieter, deeper life with her evolving faith. Sean is a treasure, and this podcast reflects that. So glad that you're here, folks. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now, let's get on to the host of our show, Ian Cron. Sean Aniquist, Enneagram 7, with a super strong six-wing author of the new book. I guess I haven't learned that yet. Discovering new ways of living when the old ways stop working. Welcome to Typology again. Thank you for having me. Great to be with you. I always love a chance to hang with Shauna. I feel just the same. And Aaron says hello. Well, hello to Aaron. And uh, what does it say on that thing on your back wall there? Oh, uh, Empire State of Mind. And you are speaking to us from the great town of Manhattan. It's true. I bought that um, for Aaron our first Christmas in Manhattan. So. Yeah. Perfect. 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 Okay. It's been a little while since you've been on the show. Mm-hmm. And I want to know what you've learned since the last time we spoke about you as an Enneagram 7 and um, how you're using that in your life right now. Well, I would say uh, one thing I noticed very specifically, I think all of us over the last couple of years have been uh stressed or challenged to a pretty significant degree, even if uh, it was just like staying home for a long time in a, in a house with the same people every day. There were lots of different stressors. But when um, uh, oftentimes in unhealth, the seven goes to one. And so that need for, to try to control my space, uh, my family would tell you, became very acute um, during <laughs> some of those pandemic stretches of time. Just like, that doesn't go there. That doesn't go there. Just a a way to try to manage my environment when I couldn't manage everything around me or inside of me. So I would say my family knows at this point when I get real funny about like, the candle goes slightly to the left. They're like, okay, she's doing great. Cool, 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 cool. Stay out of mom's way. Right. Um, I would also say I've been learning a lot. I spent many years learning about the seven. um, But in the last couple of years, I've been focusing a lot on that six wing because I think it's more, it's stronger than I had originally realized, or it's shifted over time. But that desire for security, um, that sense of wanting to belong to something, I think so many of the things, and I obviously I write about this so much in the book, part of the reason that these changes in my life were so painful is because I wanted, um, I'm more change averse than I thought, and mm. I wanted the stability and security and belonging that I had enjoyed for so long. A lot of people thrive in sort of that the adventure of unbelonging did not feel like an adventure to me. It felt like standing outside in the cold, you know? Mm. And one of the ways I was able to understand why it was so hard for me was because of that six part of me. Wow. So, you know, when I interview 
Enneagram Sevens, and they have a new book out. I mean, sometimes the titles are hysterically funny, <laughs> right? I mean, they really are. They're like, um, Bob Goff just recently wrote a book called Undistracted, and I said to him, I said, Bob, what Enneagram Seven in the world has the audacity to write a book called Undistracted? <laughs> I mean, you know, crazy. And here you've written a book that does not have an Enneagram Seven title. If anything, it's a little fourish. Right. Uh, maybe Aaron, you know, in addition to. Are, are you suggesting that Aaron wrote my book? Is that where you're headed with this? Are you accusing me of something? Well, I suspect that if you live in Manhattan, it's a very small space. And maybe some of that four rubbed off. I don't know. But but here's a book called I Guess I Haven't Learned Any That, you know, I Haven't Learned That Yet. Discovering New Ways of Living When the Old Ways Stop Working. That doesn't sound very seven. Um, maybe it's that strong six wing. But man, it sounds like a self reflective for about to write a creative nonfiction memoiry kind of you know looking at the angsty side of life yeah well you know i would say a couple things about that i would say it's been the hardest season of my life by a factor of a thousand mm. um and i would say sometimes people have pointed out to me that i like sometimes they say uh, what I love about your writing is uh, you live with such simplicity and calm. And I'm like, oh, that's hysterical. I don't do that ever. I write about it because I need it, you know? Mm. Um, or they say, you know, you, you write with so, such a sense of groundedness. I'm like, no one who knows me would ever say that about me. Um, and also, I write a lot more about sadness and complexity um, than you would assume for a seven. And I think it's the seven going to five in health. And I think writing is one of the places in my life that feels like a safe space for me to confront the darker sides that would be easy to ignore. Mm. And so I think being my friend, you probably experience some of the other 70 things, but my writing tends to have a little bit more of the um, depth and focus of the five, the willingness yeah. to stay with something for a long time. Wow. You, you write in the book, I'm going to give you a quote, right? This is the book I wish someone had written for me when I was in a season of near constant untethering and unbelonging, wandering and fumbling and ultimately discovering a million beautiful surprises after a couple very dark years. This is everything I know, wild and messy, accompaniments for the hardest stretches of the journey. Now, like I said, that's pretty foolish. I want to know uh, about these very dark years and how you as a seven kind of have navigated them. Well, you know, I mean, I feel like looking back, I tried everything. I tried things that were really helpful, things that were really unhelpful. Um, some of them worked, some of them didn't. But I, um, a couple things that always helped me were connection I'm a verbal processor. So having people to just talk with always helped me. Writing, I, I would say now more than ever, writing really saved me. Having a place to put all of my feelings and ideas and emotions and experiences was really helpful. Walking was tremendous, was and is tremendously helpful. Um, but I think all of us, um, you know, have faced a handful of things the last couple of years again even if it's just the restrictions on where we got to go but for some people much more serious 
um, losing a business during the pandemic or um, going through it all alone. I mean, the things we've faced in the last couple of years, I think we need some new practices or lifelines to help get us back on track. And that's Hmm. sort of what some of this book is trying to do. Yeah, you know, um, I was just, you just triggered something in my mind, which is how hard the pandemic must have been for sevens. Like, you know, being told, first of all, sevens don't like being told what to do. So someone's saying, you got to wear a mask or you got to stay home or you have to do this or that. I mean, those sorts of limitations would typically drive a crazy a seven absolutely out of their mind. Yeah, I would say the, um, of course, I, I know that one of the core seven responses is like reframing. Um, there was something really lovely about like this cozy time with our kids and, I like made a million pizzas and we made bead bracelets and we had all these funny little traditions that we did together. And so I think there were parts of it that were really great. It also clarified for me um, a couple of the parts of my life that I thought I could never change, changed overnight. One of them was like work travel. I had been for years, I had been saying like, I don't think I like this. (laughs) I wish I could change this. I wish this was not so much part of my work life. Well, then it went away entirely. And I was able to say like, I, I guess, everybody's okay if I don't do this anymore. And that was, I was really grateful for that. Mother's Day is almost here and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried and true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Mm. You know, um, you, I asked you a question originally and you kind of answered it, but I want to sort of drill down just a little bit. What precisely was the content of those dark years? Precisely. Um, we moved away from my hometown. And there are a lot of layers to that. Um, one of them was, um, I thought we would live there forever and I wanted to. And every year for the 10 years before we moved, my husband had been saying, this isn't how I want to live or where I want to live. And um, one of the things I really regret was that I didn't, um, I didn't listen to him because I was afraid of the consequences for my own life if I listened. Hmm. And so I said like, oh, he probably doesn't mean that. He probably wants exactly what I want. He probably is just feeling this in the moment, but it'll pass. And then several different parts of our life, our relationship to our church, our relationship to some friends and long-term extended family, a lot of things ended all at the same time in a really, really painful way. And we knew we were going to move already, but then this sort of made things, uh, made our life there. We felt like we were sort of overstaying something that had already ended. And so we were excited to move to New York, but I really grieved the end of a life that I thought was going to go on a lot longer. Um, At the same time, I had some chronic health stuff, um, some really severe neck and shoulder pain that I couldn't get answers on. Um, And then right before the pandemic started, I, my doctor said something like totally in passing, like, how long have you been in menopause? And I was like, I don't know what we're, I think you're looking at somebody else's folder. And so about 
without, I didn't have any context for it, but about 10 years earlier than average, I was in the middle of menopause and then a global pandemic. And so from leaving home and leaving a way of life that I was really committed to, to some of these ongoing mental and physical health things, to the newness of a new city, um, and then a pandemic, it felt like I couldn't get used to one new part of my life before another old part was taken away and replaced. Mm. Like I was, my head was sort of spinning with all the different changes. And because so much of it affected my own mental and physical self, I felt like I wasn't the same person even. Like the outsides of my life were changing, but the insides were changing too. I kept saying, I'm really surprised that I recognize my own face in the mirror right now because mm. everything wow. feels so different. Mm. Grief. We just had a conversation with uh, Maddie Jackson Seligman. She's Alan Jackson's uh, daughter, and uh, she lost her husband very, very suddenly, you know, in their late 20s in an mm. accident. And um, she's a three, and we talked about how threes cope with grief. Like, how do they work through it? And I, I oftentimes tell, you know, in the past, clients and other people, you know, I think grief is like the hardest human emotion. Mm. There's no emotion that you feel in, more out of control in. It's like you, it has to have its way with you. You can try to run, but you cannot hide. And I think it's particularly hard for seven. So tell me, how would you, this is a hard question, how would you define grief and then tell folks how you as a seven navigated grief? Um, I feel I'm not going to get the quote right, but the spirit of it is so beautiful. And I don't remember who said it, but I believe that Maggie Smith, the poet, wrote about it. But I don't think it's hers originally, although it may be. But she said something like, um, grief is homeless love, love that has no home. Mm. You're, you're, you're trying to love something or someone or some experience and you can't anymore for whatever reason. And so that love kind of has no place to go. And I think that's a really beautiful and compelling way to think about grief. Um, and I would say, I tend to, and in this situation, certainly I tried to outrun it. And then I think all that did was make it bigger when I actually had to face it. So I feel like, um, you know, I'm, I tend to be, I think sevens tend to be really good in, like in a, in a crisis or in a like moving, like I was having garage sales and donating things and staging a house and finding an apartment and measuring things and boom, 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 boom. And, and then making new friends and getting our kids into school. And I was operating at a very high level of energy and I mean, I was walking all over the city and eating at all these amazing places. And, and then um, about almost, just shy of a year before after we moved about 10 months after we moved the seasons changed and i was just flattened with grief mm -hmm. just like like run over by a steamroller um and it was like the adrenaline had run out and in that in the in the intervening months the grief had gotten bigger and bigger and bigger um i didn't know how to do it any other way but um i think outrunning is probably a pretty common seven practice mm. Did you find that, and it, you know, personal question, but did you find yourself drawn to any addictive behaviors as a way of coping, as, as part of the running? You know what I mean? Just, I'm just curious because lots of sevens 
seem drawn to that. You know, it's like such a, an efficient way of coping with mm-hmm. grief. I'm just curious. Oh, I mean, I would say definitely during my uh, seasons of greatest grief and specifically this one, I tend toward excessiveness in every area. Mm. I wouldn't say full-blown addiction, but right. I would say I have had to have some honest conversations and keep my eye on various behaviors, even if it's just um, certainly getting too busy not taking care of my body, but also I can tell when I'm staying out later and later when I'm, I, uh, the word I use is indiscriminate. Mm. Um, at my healthiest, if an amazing opportunity comes along uh, with a person I really enjoy or an experience I really enjoy, I can move things around and have that experience or I can say, no, it doesn't work. But at my lower levels of health, I'm a yes for everything. I am everybody's like late night phone call. I am like 100% gonna walk out the door. And I remember right in the middle of what felt like some of the deepest grief, (laughs) a a friend of ours called us and Aaron and I were already like in our pajamas in our bed. We weren't asleep yet, but they asked if we wanted to go out and Aaron was like, hard pass, of course not. And I was like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, put my pants on. Uh, I'll be down there in two seconds. And I just, um, the desire to be kept company and entertained and to have interesting things happening around me gets too big Mm -hmm. and the willingness to be quiet and alone gets too small. Mm-hmm. I bet you were really, well, you tell me, was being married to a four an asset or a challenge as you walked through grief? You know, I would say big picture, one of the things Aaron and I are starting to get a little better at, I think, um, we, I think we understand now that we were both drawn to the opposite in the other, right? He wants the life and vitality and and spark of a seven. I want the depth and meaning of a four in my life. At our worst, we try to instruct each other how to do that. Um, and that, that never works. At our best, we um, pursue our own ways of being healthy and kind of inspire the other. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So when we're bossing each other around to be more like the other, that never works. But when we're giving each other a good example, um, out of a place of health, that really helps us. Mm. Um, and I would say, I think even if Aaron were here, he, I think he would say there were times when he pushed me a little too hard, feel it more, stay in it more, face it more. Um, he pushed me right to the edge of me saying like, I don't, I, I don't want to be in the same room with you. You're, this is terrible, <laughs> you know? Um, and he wasn't wrong that I needed to face it more, but I wasn't ready to face it as fully as he was. And so, that's a, a dance and that's a balance that we had to figure out along the way. Mm. Mm. You know, I was just thinking about geography and um, how powerful it is. Landscape, geography, place. Um, and, you know, I'm a four. So I like beautiful places. If you said to me, let's go walk on the northwest coast of Ireland, I would melt into your arms. I would be like, oh, and I hope it's misty. And you know, <laughs> it, you know what I mean? Like, totally. like that's, that's kind of a happy place. You would think that Manhattan would be a happy place for a seven. And you know, I grew up 30 miles from Manhattan. I've spent countless hours and time in Manhattan. Um, as a four, you know, if I'm down in the village and I'm having, you know, you're in Chelsea, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So by the way, when I was a kid, that was called Hell's Kitchen. Um, and um, <laughs> wasn't a great neighborhood. It was someplace you went to score coke or get killed. Um, and, you know, um, 
when I'm in Manhattan, I, the creative side of Manhattan is very, you know, wonderful for me. But overall, it's way too much stimulus for me. It's overwhelming. Too many sounds, too many smells, too much of everything. And I would think that for a seven, that's pretty cool. It's pretty great. There's a lot of stimulation. But it also sounds to me maybe that that was a challenge for you at some level. Am I wrong about that? I mean, as you're dealing with grief, you're dealing with, I mean, how does the interaction of place and type work out? Well, I have a couple thoughts. A friend of mine who's actually a seven as well, um, his name is Mark and he lives in New York and he, his theory is that for creative people, New York is either the best thing because it, um, they enjoy the, multi-dimension the the sensory like it it wakes up their creativity it makes their creativity really easy to access or for other creative creative people it really overwhelms them too many sensory details too many sounds too many textures and it sort of shuts them down i'm definitely that first Mm. um new york feels like a very inspiring creative place to me but there's also i mean i one of the things that i really loved loved especially in my season of deepest grief i walked all over the city and openly wept and nobody cared right and well that's true in manhattan an, yeah it's an amazing place to be invisible if that's mm. what you're craving wow. nobody's gonna be like oh excuse me are you feeling sad they're like move i don't care right. um and i loved that and so um you know i think the challenge sure, certainly uh, we joke about it that you could literally go out every night here and that's in some seasons I've definitely gotten too busy and definitely said yes you know especially because so many fun people come to visit right and so you're like oh you're in town just for one night yes to you just one night yes to you yes to you and pretty soon my kids are like what's your name again I'm like okay 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 I gotta cool it but in terms of grief this feels like a city that can absorb a lot of emotion in a good way I have just, mm. again, walking is kind of my my biggest spiritual practice, especially when it comes to difficult emotion. I I mean, not that long ago, I had a little disappointment. It wasn't that bad. It, it was a medium-sized disappointment, but it hit me in a very emotional way. And I just marched down the West Side Highway, tears rolling down my face. And again, nobody cares. It's a really safe place to let those things out. And I love that about it. I keyed in on that when you said it earlier at the beginning of the interview, and I'd just love to know what walking does for you. Like what, you talked about what happened, but what is it doing for you? So uh, I've always been a walker. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm I'm not like a, like CrossFit would make me weep. I don't like being yelled at. I'm not a great runner. (laughs) Um, Fitness has always been like a tricky thing for me to figure out. Like if someone bosses me around, I'm like out the door. But walking has always felt like something I really love and I'm a fast walker and I, and I think, so in normal life, walking in the city is like a seven's dream, right? You just, it's just like things to see everywhere. Um, new, beautiful things around every corner, interesting things or dirty things or broken things or beautiful things, whatever. Um, also in this season, I had to work so hard to manage both my physical health and my mental health and the ways that they were related. And my therapist kept reminding me that grief is somatic, meaning it lives in our bodies. Mm -hmm. And so it has to come out. And so I started thinking about walking as like, Mm. almost like like you're going to churn that sadness out through your pores with every passing step. Wow. And so it felt like that to me. 
one of the ways to bring myself peace or healing is three miles down and three miles back on the Hudson River as fast as I can. Uh, it felt like a really generative healing practice. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm the same. I was telling Anthony, I walk, I walk four to six miles every day as fast as I can, you know, um, and I, in part because I just love nature. I mm -hmm. just, and that would be hard for me in the city too, because there's too much concrete below and not enough sky above, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I, listen, I love Manhattan. I've spent a lot of time there, you know, um, and, uh, but I'm just, I, you know, just back to the geography thing. I do think type and place is something we need to consider, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, I know that I lived in a place for many years I, I didn't actually belong in. And I wish as a young man, mm. I had thought about geography and, and my own personal growth as a person and said to myself, I am in the wrong place. Like I'm, the things I see, the things I smell, the things I do, I'm in the wrong place as a four. I'm surrounded by investment bankers. I'm, I'm just not in the right place. And when I did find the right place, I blossomed, I flowered. And it sounds like you have found your right place. You know, I think that's true. And I think it's especially true for Aaron. Um, I think he would say that um, where we had been living and it was the same time that he grew up in was not um, the right fit for him. And when we moved here, like we were here like maybe three days and he said, Shauna, I'm going to die in this city. And I was like, are you sick? He was like, no, this is my spiritual home and I'm going to live here as absolutely long as possible. He just felt that like click of resonance. And actually, when I speak with my, when I talk with my friends here, tell me if this resounds with you. Um, I think the people who have the hardest time in New York are threes hmm. because I think um, that desire to achieve and chase and network and appear and have more and position hmm. feels almost insatiable. Hmm. Um, I think it can be a very, um, you're, there's never enough, you never can get far enough or climb high enough. And then that can feel very kind of stressful and depleting over time. Yeah. I, I mean, it depends on the neighborhood, right? Yeah. But I think on the whole, I experienced Manhattan as a very eight town. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. A, it, it, it's a very aggressive town. People, you know, you could walk, as oh, you were yeah. mentioning earlier, you could walk down any street, especially in Midtown, with a spear in your chest and no one would stop to help you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They'd be like, that spear is kind of, you know, preventing me from getting to my next location fast enough, right? And, um, you know, so again, I just, I don't know if this has any importance for people listening but sometimes i think when people feel a sense of discontent a long mm -hmm. season of discontent one of the things i ask them is are you in the right geography is is mm. this your place um and if it's not man and then sometimes people look at me like i'd never even thought about that like i'd never thought about my geography and i'm like well it actually has a lot to do with your mm -hmm. happiness and with your sense of alignment with the world I totally agree. And, you know, I think for a long time, I kind of ascribed to the um, wherever you go, there you are. Mm. And to a certain extent, that is true, obviously. Um, but I really have come around. There are better and worse places for all of us. There are better and worse lifestyles. There are better and worse parts of the country and parts of the world. And it's interesting. I, as soon as you say it, absolutely. New York City is an eight. And I grew up around eights. My son is an eight. I love eights. I um. It seems like I hear a lot of people have trouble with eights. I, 
they're always my favorite people in the room. They're there. That's a, a type that's not particularly troubling for me. And so it, it makes sense that this would be a place that feels really aligned for me. Yeah. That's so funny. You should say that because I love eights. I don't like men eights. I love women eights. Really? Yes. I, I grew up with an eight mother. I have an eight daughter. I feel very comfortable with, you know, strongly opinionated, brassy, um, sassy, sometimes over the top women. They just make me laugh. And I connect very quickly with women eights, you know, no nonsense women eights. When I get around a guy, sometimes I just feel like I'm being bullied. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I just feel like I'm, there's a lot of elbows flying around, you know, if they're not very self-aware, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I just, that's so funny to say, it's like, yeah, I love women eights. Eh, I don't know about men eights very much, but, <laughs> but women eights, I love women eights. I think they're fantastic. <laughs> I read a quote this morning and it made me think of you knowing you were going to be on the show. I'm reading a beautiful book right now. Have you read Bittersweet yet by Susan Cain? I have not yet, but I've heard such good things about it. It is a lovely book. Um, I wish I could remember the subtitle. However, in it, she, I'm going to absolutely bastardize this quote, but, but it's beautiful. Someone was talking about that they felt their role in the world was to look pain in the eye and make something better of it. Mm. And I went, oh my gosh, well, as a four, I think, and this is true of me, that's kind of been my journey. Mm-hmm as from the time I was a little kid trying to look pain in the eye and make something better of it and then help other people in pain to make something better of theirs. You know, mm -hmm. you've gone through this season of pain. I'm assuming the book has helped you make something better of it by sharing it with others. Right. Mm -hmm. But could you summarize um, how you've made something better of it beyond the book? Um, well, I would say one thing that has increased in me, separate from the book, um, my sense of and capacity for empathy mm. has really changed in the last couple of years. Mm. I think um, I mm. recognize, it's like when you're pregnant, everywhere you look around, if somebody's pregnant, when you buy a Jeep Wrangler, suddenly everybody's driving a Jeep Wrangler. When you've had your heart very badly broken, you start to recognize how it looks in other people and you start to learn how to be more tender with what other people have carried. Um, I think there's an initial experience of pain that makes you very myopic. It's all about me and my pain. It's the only thing you can see. But as you grow, you start to see like, holy moly, have people been going through stuff like this all along? Oh my goodness. I want to be so much more careful with this person in my life. I want to be so much more tender. I want to be so much more forgiving. You start to realize what people are carrying. And so I think that's been one of the biggest things. Um, mm. But I would say in general, um, I hope that my greatest calling is not looking pain in the eye. I, I bet that is beautiful, but that is not where I want to <laughs> <laughs> I don't want that job. Um, uh, I think my deepest calling is about hospitality. It's about mm. people feeling seen and known. It's about saying you're not alone, whether you're saying it through a book or through an invitation to have dinner around our coffee table. I think it's, for me, it's all about, uh, it, and it's very seven and six. The seven is everything is a special occasion and a reason to gather. And the, set, the six says like, is there anybody alone? Does anybody need to be brought in? I'm holding space for all of us. You belong here. 
Mm. Um, but I think everything I do ultimately comes out of a sense of hospitality. And I, I always, especially this book more than ever, I don't write as an expert. I write as a person who's saying over and over again, you're not alone. Yeah. If you feel at completely blindsided by everything in your life, you're not alone in that. If you feel this, if you feel this, it's just a way of keeping people company in a loving way. Mm. I love that. And I think what's so encouraging and impressive about what you're saying is, you know, if we were going to assign a psychological label to different types, and I've done this lots of times on the show, you know, we might say that, you know, fours at their worst, maybe when they turn, when they bottom out and then go through the floor at the bottom are like borderline personality disorders, right? Mm -hmm. If you're around a, a one, it can turn to obsessive compulsive personality disorder. For sevens, it's narcissism. Hmm. So, and, and you know, don't, don't take that on the chin. I mean, t trust me, every type has a, you know, a correlate that isn't, and it's not, but remember that this is not, uh, this is at the very worst, right? But I think that sevens, and what I mean that for sevens is that sevens oftentimes don't have empathy for other people who stand in the way of what they want to do, and then mm -hmm. they go ahead and do it anyway, Yeah. even though, and, and that's the lack of empathy. It's like they don't think through, oh, this is going to cost Aaron, you know, I'm running out the door, even though Aaron is in bed and wanting to have a conversation. You know what I'm saying? That's, yeah. That could be viewed as a lack of empathy in the moment. So when you say that what's coming up for you is empathy... I just think that's a sign of the of development that's just fantastic for sevens, you know, the slow down, come into the home and and to uh, practice empathy is something that every seven I think has to learn. So good on you. Well, thank you. Very you. exciting. Okay. And I do recognize that. I I the term narcissist has been used in so many different ways in recent years, but several years ago someone told me that a seven uh, they use the term soft narcissist. And I was talking with a very close friend about it. And she said, it, it's not that she said the way I experience it with you is when you're so excited about something, you genuinely can't imagine that other people are not excited about it or want you to do something different. And so you bowl them over and you don't mean to, and you're not trying to be cruel, but you just genuinely are like, isn't this fun? And it's, you're failing to notice that it's not fun for everyone or that other people need different things. Yeah, you, you're, you stop listening because you're so excited by what's in front of you. Right. Yeah, and, and I definitely do that. Yeah, and sometimes what a seven will do is when someone is sharing their discomfort or their pain, um, they want to get past it so quickly. And so they don't listen and they don't sit and they don't, you know, try to plug in to the other person's um, way of experiencing the world in in that moment and so i think all the things you're saying are just signs of such beautiful health for mm -hmm. a developing seven you know just really fantastic all right so again we're talking with shauna nequist as all of you know but i want to remind you all of the title of this new book i guess i haven't learned that yet discovering new ways of living when the old ways stop working practices you mentioned the word practices before. You know, you're in a hard season and the old ways have stopped working. Give me some practices, would you? Because I, I could put them in my little, my little <laughs> quiver. Uh, well, you know, obviously we've talked about walking. We've talked about connection. I think um, for many people, certainly for me, the impulse when I'm in great pain is to isolate. 
And I have learned to connect as a discipline, as a practice, mm. uh, to send a text that I don't want to send that says like, I, I could really use some connection right now. Can we get some time in the next couple of days? Um, therapy has been a huge part of that for me. Spiritual direction has been another practice that's been very valuable to me. Um, these, some of these sound really silly, but one of the things that my therapist encouraged me to do at a certain point was to, he said, I want you to have a creative outlet that's not words. Like you're, you're coming up with a lot of words. You've got a lot to say. A lot of it comes out in words. I get it, but I want you to do something that has no words associated with it. And so I started painting watercolors and they are terrible. They're truly awful. Like my kids even know they're awful, but it's been important for me to just do things that are creative, but not productive or useful. The, mm -hmm. the, the point of it is the making of it, not the beautiful thing that comes later. Mm. Um, so that has been an important one. And then uh, you know, writing was more of a spiritual practice this time around. Um, I wrote like almost 200,000 words and the book's not nearly that long. I just had to write and write and write my way through it. And then another one was showing up at church on Sunday mornings. Um, I understand why lots of people don't do that anymore. Um, and also there were a lot of times when I had to kind of push myself to do it. And I never regretted it. I always found that time with our community, praying and, and saying the creeds together and receiving the Eucharist to be kind of a grounding and restorative practice, even when it was the last place I wanted to be. Mm. Yeah, there's something powerful. I, I, I remember going to a church once in a very, in a very bad place. And I turned to this friend of mine, and they, we were reciting uh, the Nicene Creed. And I turned to him and I go, I don't think I believe a word of this, right? And he, he looked back at me and he said, don't worry, I'll say it for you. I mm. love that. Wow. See, I'm going to my four happy place right now. Tears are coming up. But, <laughs> but it, it, there was something so beautiful about it that he, he said, look, you can rent my faith today. Mm -hmm. And I'll carry you. And then next week, maybe you'll believe it again. You know, it's, there's something so restorative and beautiful about that kind of community. Absolutely. Yeah. And I can think of so many times when um, I couldn't sing, but I loved hearing people sing. Or, you know, uh, I think there is a really, and I also sometimes feel what your friend felt like, I'm going to show up this week and say the creeds for all the people who can't this week. Mm. I'm going to be the one who can because for a long time I was the one who couldn't or whatever. I think that's a really beautiful way that, that we build those kind of spiritual communities together. Mm. All right, Shauna, what a lovely conversation. <laughs> what it's a always beautiful, great to talk with you. Man, I mean, I wish I was sitting there with you and Aaron and we were just, you know, sharing quotes from new, by the way, we can cut this, Anthony, if it's of no interest to you. Have you read, because I know you're a huge reader, have you read the, the novel, This Is Happiness? No, who wrote it? I'm writing oh, it down. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, I'm so excited. <laughs> uh, his name is, it's a, he's an Irishman. And, uh, it could be Neil Williams, but it's spelled N-I-A-L-L. -L. Okay. So yeah. I don't know if it's Nile or Neil, whatever. Williams. The title is This Is Happiness. It's one of the finest novels I've read in years. I Wonderful. wept through the last 10 pages because they were so beautifully written. Not because they were sad, but because every word 
Uh, it, you know what it reminded me of is like if Wendell Berry was Irish and actually had a little bit of a bigger vocabulary that he employed in his writing, then this is what would get produced. It was exquisite. So you need to read it and then text me what you thought. I mm. will. Right? Because um, it, it's a beauty. Can I tell you one of my favorites? Come it's on. a novel, but a, a, a collection of essays. Have you read um, Ross Gay's The Book of Delights? No, but I will now. It is 100% the most seven book there ever could be. But um, Ross Gay is a poet and he lives sometimes in Indiana and sometimes in New York City. And his life in Indiana is very much, um, he's teaching poetry and it's a lot of gardening. So he writes a lot about that. And then his life mm. in the city is, you know, city life. But he decides instead of writing poetry every single day of the year to write what he calls an essayette, a short little prose paragraph, sometimes one paragraph, sometimes like two pages something that delights him that day mm. it is I mean, it's just so beautiful but it also puts you in touch with your delight like when he writes about seeing a perfect ponytail on a little girl swinging back and forth as she walks across the cobblestone streets well now i'm walking across a cobblestone street like what what is there for me to see or feel or whatever so it's a total favorite and i've heard from people who read audiobooks that the audio version is just incredible Ooh. okay title again love that the book of delights got it writing it by down ross gay it is i love it so much and i'm now we've given two titles to our listeners right and uh hopefully they'll uh go out and get those but most importantly we want people to go out and get i guess i haven't learned that yet discovering new ways of living when the old ways stop working shauna I don't know when I'm next going to be in Manhattan, but I'm going to be one of those people who calls you and says, I'm only here for a day. Can we get together? <laughs> and you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say, yes, of course. All right. I would well, love that. Please it's, do. It's coming. Mm -hmm. People, listen to me. Uh, you can go to Shauna's website, Shauna Nyquist, S-H-A-U-N-A-N-I-E-Q-U-I-S-T.com and uh, across her socials, it's at S Nyquist. Shauna, we love you. Thank you so much always great to be with you thank you so much and typology friends remember these words may you have love may you have joy may you have peace may you have healing and may you have rest until next time <laughs> <laughs>